1: Telemedicine really is around the video conferencing and phone call, and I think it's here to stay. I think in 2022, you're going to see probably 30 to 40% of your calls are going to revolve around the video calls and phone calls.
2: Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll learn about the rise of telemedicine. We'll discuss everything about watermelons. We'll explore the benefits of being engaged. And lastly, we'll find out how to conserve water around the house. But first, a little bit of business. Jack Nathan Health offers Canadians convenient care with 74 multidisciplinary clinics located within Walmart stores. The largest ever Jack Nathan Health Medical Centre is now open in Vaughan, Ontario at 8300 Highway 27. The new 8300 square foot clinic offers integrated services for the whole family, including family medicine, physiotherapy and chiropractic, chronic pain management, massage and a registered dietitian. There's also an on-site Dynacare blood laboratory, plus same-day referrals, walk-in appointments, and a new annual health assessment option. Jack Nathan Health is a one-stop shop for proactive health management. For more information, visit jacknathanhealth.com. Search Zinelli is Jack Nathan Health's Chief Technology Officer. With decades of experience implementing digital health solutions, Serge was responsible for IT planning, implementation, and support throughout the network of 20 multidisciplinary clinics that included over 100 healthcare providers specializing in family medicine. He has a BSc in computer science and an MHSC in health administration from the University of Toronto. Welcome to the show, sir. How are you?
1: Thank you. I'm doing well. How are you doing,
2: Jamie? I'm doing great. So, you know, one of the things has sort of flows out of the pandemic is that there's been a real material change in the way that people see their health practitioners. And one of the things that I think we're all seeing is the growth in the use of technology and particularly the rise in the use of telemedicine. Is that what you're seeing?
1: Absolutely. I, I think there's been a tremendous amount of growth with technology, particularly, like you said, in the telemedicine area. You know, the pandemic has shown us, you know, the power and opportunities that exist with virtual care. You've seen the growth of Zoom. I think everybody now has heard of. You know, a Zoom call—it's no longer called a virtual call or a, a video call. People say, "Oh, we're going to have a Zoom call."
2: Yeah, it's been well, branded—it's been branded like Kleenex, right? Which is no yeah. longer a tissue. It's the same thing, <laughs>
1: exactly. You know, you you would have thought Microsoft Teams would have had that growth, but yeah. for some reason, Zoom has taken over that platform, and uh, you know. You see physicians now purchasing microphones so that they can listen to their patient one-on-one and not everybody around them is listening to it. You've seen the growth of tablets, wireless devices, patient portals, online appointments. All of these technologies really are around creating an environment for the patient that they can conduct uh, an appointment online with their healthcare professional. So they don't have to go in the clinic. They can conduct that visit virtually, maintain a safe environment, And I think people really appreciate the extent that some of these doctors and clinics have gone to to accommodate the existing environment that
2: we're in. I agree with you. What's interesting for me coming out of the pandemic is to see which trends continue on. Do you think that telemedicine has legs and that we'll continue to have these Zoom calls with our doctors into the future?
1: Absolutely. I think people have this conception that telemedicine really has to do with only Zoom calls. Telemedicine really is around either a phone call or you you do a, a Zoom call or a Microsoft Teams call, whatever that visual component is, or it's a straight phone call that you have that you booked with your patient like you do right now. But you are still seeing patients go to the clinic. So if a doctor and patient are doing a video visit with one another, there still is that opportunity for that patient to go into the clinic after that doctor has assessed that patient online during a video visit. They've had that opportunity to see, all right, I need to see you some more. Come on in and they'll conduct the proper screening. And you have your in person visit now, but. Telemedicine really is around the video conferencing and phone call, and I think it's here to stay. I think in 2022, you're going to see probably 30 to 40 percent of your calls are going to revolve around the video calls and phone calls.
2: Yeah, I mean, in speaking with doctors and various health practitioners, you know, you can't do everything. Like at some point, you may need to see the patient because you you need to touch, you know, their skin or you need to do testing. But as a triage tool to find out what's going on and whether or not that in-person visit is required, I I can't imagine they're going to move off of telemedicine. It just makes sense.
1: Yeah. If you have to see the patient, you know, the doctors know when they have to see a patient in person. And I don't think that's ever going to be replaced. Plus, there's people that just do not want to to a video or phone call. They want to see the patient. I know my parents, they would rather go in.
2: For sure. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, it's old school, new school, right? Like not everybody's going to cut into the technology. We've been focusing sort of outward towards the patient so far, but what is the impact of telemedicine on the physicians and frontline workers?
1: Yeah, so I think... People have seen with organizations like Ontario MD really working with the healthcare professionals to grow technology in the primary care or family doctor space. But with the pandemic, we've really seen an acceleration of technology in in healthcare. You know, these doctors and frontline workers, they're having to learn this new technology that's coming out. They're having to trust this technology. They need to know what to do with this technology. They have to figure it out, find out who the right provider is, what the right company is. Is it safe? Is my patient going to adapt to this? Am I going to have to make more changes? But, you know, I think this is only increased access to care for patients. Not only that, but now that doctor's volume of patients is probably going to go up now because more patients can access that doctor. Distance is no longer an issue now. That barrier now is going away.
2: Yeah. Conceptualized COVID is like the great beta test for this technology, right? Like like the doctors were thrown into it. They had to use it. And, and I'm sure there's all kinds of data coming out of it as to how effective a tool it actually can be, right?
1: Exactly. And so I, I think there's always going to be some some adopters that are, you know, gonna be hesitant. Yeah. Because like I said, the the security component is always gonna be an issue with patients and doctors. Mm-hmm. And I know with healthcare and the technology side, I always wanna make sure that we're providing our healthcare professionals and our patients with the utmost amount of security and that they don't have to ever worry about their data being leaked or anybody accessing that information. We're making sure that we maintain a secure environment that only the, the right eyes are seeing that information.
2: Are you finding that is the sticking point, that this notion of privacy is what is sort of driving people to accept the technology or not accept the technology?
1: <laughs> I think that's a great point. How many times have you heard on the news where You know, somebody is getting into trouble for accessing a patient's information or a patient's information has been lost, compromised, whatever that is. I think that's always going to be there with technology. But all we can do is really, you know, work towards creating that safe environment. And you have, you know, industry standards out there like OTN, Ontario Telemedicine Network in Ontario, pushing out standardized tools in order how to go about managing that data and giving you guidelines on how to keep data safe. And they'll go through a verification process. You know, this just started last year, late last year, where OTN, Ontario Telemedicine Network, has been verifying telemedicine solutions. There's 10 telemedicine applications now verified on the OTN network that can now push their information out there and people can have a certain level of confidence that their system has met a certain level of standards pushed out by the government.
2: Okay, that's good to know. Not everybody has a computer and, 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 you know, it could be a generational thing or it could be an issue of finance or maybe not. You're living in an area where there isn't great internet. How does telemedicine adapt to somebody who's in one of those scenarios where maybe they're not computer literate, et cetera?
1: Yeah, and I think that's just a component of making people aware that telemedicine is not only with a computer. Okay, Telemedicine can be done with a telephone. Like right now, I know I had a telemedicine appointment with my doctor, and it was over the phone. I expected a Zoom call, to be honest, but right. it just so happened. I had a, a phone call with them, and that was it. So it's it's just different ways of doing it. Some doctors are using the video. Some doctors are not. And some situations require a video if you have a wound or a scar, or right. something you need to show that healthcare professional that And really, it's it's a standard protocol. You call the doctor, make a visit, and you either see them or you do it over the phone or they come in and the patient has to go through the proper screening process.
2: Let's turn our mind to not necessarily like an appointment, but sort of maintenance or or monitoring situations. How is this technology helping both the patients and, and the physicians sort of do that ongoing monitoring process?
1: So there's different ways of monitoring patient's health. Either you can have that video call and you can actually physically see them. You can use various pieces of technology. You know, I'm assuming some people are aware of these glucometer devices that you can use to manage your glucometer readings. That data can then go back to the doctor. There's remote heart rate monitors. There's blood pressure monitors. All this information is gathered in real time from the patient. It can be sent back to that healthcare professional and if there's any issues the software can be utilized as an alerting tool so if there's a reading that's out there's an alert that goes off you work with your healthcare professional you send it to them and you can review that data with them over a visit to see if there is any concern or if it's any issues with the technology so really these remote monitoring tools provide the healthcare professional with data in real time or allows the patient to share that data with that healthcare professional during a visit so that they don't have to ask the questions, what was your reading yesterday or the day before? It gives you better access to health information to provide better informed care for the patient as well.
2: So let's get out the crystal ball and I'm going to ask you to be a little bit of a futurist, okay? So from your your perch in the healthcare system what do you see as the future of telemedicine and overall greater use of the technology where do you see it going
1: I really believe that the, the future of telemedicine is that you know telemedicine really is here to stay you know there's been increased adoption by healthcare professionals increased adoption by patients and once again in in 2022 I think we're going to see an increase by 30 to 40% with telemedicine appointments with your healthcare professional You know, there's a level of convenience here that really, I think, resonates very well with the patients and the healthcare professionals. You know, a patient doesn't have to rush to a packed waiting room waiting for one to two hours. Instead, they can stay at their home, conveniently wait for the doctor. When they're ready, then they can conduct that visit with that healthcare professional. So, you know, the remote aspect here, I think, is a strong component as to why people will you know, adopt this new technology. I don't think it's for everybody. I think people that are used to going to see the doctor, they're going to stay with that. But I think there's going to be a tremendous amount of the population that's going to adopt this technology as the new norm on how to go about conducting a safe safe visit with their doctor.
2: That makes sense. You know, like convenience, like I I think coming out of the pandemic, I think everybody's going to perceive their time as just being more precious in general, right? Like, you know, the doctor's office used to be that place where you knew it was sort of like a black hole, a time suck. And I don't think anybody's going to put up with that going forward. I just like nobody has the time for it and being able to sort of manage your time and be more efficient with it, both from a patient and a doctor's perspective, I think is going to be beneficial for everybody.
1: Absolutely. I agree. Just just the fact that, you know, I can manage my child's online schooling with him while I wait for my doctor's appointment is just, you know, gives me that level of efficiency that, you know, makes me feel better.
2: Yeah. So you touched upon this before, and that is, you know, the improvement to medical record keeping and sort of the continuity. I would imagine that having like digital records makes it easier if you get healthcare not just like when you're here, but like perhaps when you're down south or where you're traveling to the continent or whatever. Do you see that happening as well?
1: Absolutely. And uh, I, I think
2: that when you
1: have your healthcare information online really gives you that certain level of control that You know, if you feel confident, you can go to the doctor and say, here's my health information and giving them the ability to, you know, provide me with that level of care that I need. You know, speaking of traveling, you have, you know, Singapore Airlines has adopted the IATA travel pass. You know, everybody going into Singapore, they have to have a travel pass with them stating that they've had their vaccination or test information. And this only works if that patient has their health information with them. So I really see a shift in making and patients wanting control of their health information so that you know they can book online, they can access their health information while they're traveling, whatever that might be.
2: Right, so you're, you're, you're speaking about like the COVID results, right? Like in other words, people have to prove that they've been inoculated if they wanna get into Singapore, for example. Is that what you meant?
1: Yes, exactly. Cool.
2: Yes. All right, so you're with Jack Nathan Health and what do you see the role of the company in making healthcare more accessible and convenient for patients?
1: Yeah, I think Jack Nathan's role in making healthcare more accessible and convenient to Canadians is really providing them with more access to care, whether it's via telemedicine, which is a phone call or video visit, allowing that patient that freedom to make an online appointment. Know, access their health information online, monitor their health information using a remote monitoring device, whatever that technology might be, giving them the tools that they need to get the care they need or for the providers being able to provide the care that they need to provide to that patient in an efficient manner. Really,
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We have time for one last question. Is there anything else that you know you want to share with us regarding telemedicine that you think our listeners should know?
1: Yeah, I think with the advancement of technology during the pandemic, I think we need to realize that technology is a tool to help improve care and create efficiencies, and it should not be seen as a temporary fix. So with the pandemic, people might see this as a temporary solution until we go back to normal, but really telemedicine is here to stay. We're starting to see an increase in telemedicine standards across Ontario, across the country, and across other countries as well. So telemedicine, I think is here to stay. And it's just a, a solution that we're going to get used to. And I think most of the population is going to take it on as a tool that will help them in their everyday lives and not having to you know, drive to the doctor's office and being able to get the care they need in a timely manner. Yep.
2: I agree with you wholeheartedly. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. No problem. Thank you much for having me on,
1: Jamie. I appreciate
2: it. We have to take a short break, but when we return,
0: we'll discuss watermelons on The Tonic. (sighs) Does the fear of losing control keep you awake at night? Enjoy better sleep on something you can control. The Supreme Adjustable Bed by Ultramatic. Customize your back, leg, neck, and lumbar positions with push-button control for relief of back pain, arthritis, and sleep apnea. The Supreme. Take back control of your life.
3: Try Ultramatic's Supreme Adjustable Bed for 100 nights, risk-free. Learn more at ultramatic.ca. Elevate your sleep.
2: For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com.
3: This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio.
2: My next guest, Shauna Lindzen, is a dietitian and nutritionist. She's a program developer and nutrition leader at Wellspring Cancer Support Network and enjoys seeing clients virtually and doing corporate wellness lectures. She runs practical cooking demonstrations that combine scientific knowledge with culinary education. Her demonstrations are unique, informative, delicious, and a lot of fun. And you can find a list of her nutrition classes and recipes at shaunalindzen.com. Welcome back to the show. How are you?
4: I'm great, Jamie. How are you?
2: I'm doing great. You wrote an article for us for the upcoming summer issue on watermelons. So I thought it would be fun to bring you on the show and we could discuss watermelons. Yes,
4: love watermelon.
2: <laughs> so, like, I, you know, I don't know anybody who hates watermelon. You, you might be like neutral about it. Most people like it, right?
4: Yeah, I agree.
2: Like, It's, it's not going to be a hard sales job today, but are there health reasons to eat it?
4: Yes. Actually, watermelon, first of all, it's mainly water. And in the summertime when it's really hot, you want more water. So you might as well get it through food, right? Mm -hmm. And it also has the vitamins and minerals that all fruits have, but it has a special phytochemical called lycopene. Mm -hmm. And lycopene is the... If you look at the red aspect, the color of the watermelon, that's full of lycopene. So for instance, tomatoes also have lycopene. So it's in a red
2: pigment. And why do we care about lycopene?
4: So lycopene is actually really good for our heart health. And there are studies out there that show that it's good for men's prostate. And the more the lycopene is ground up, like the more the, let's say the watermelon, when you chew it, the lycopene becomes more available. So for instance, with tomatoes, lycopene, once you puree tomatoes, there's more lycopene
2: available. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. What about when you cook it though? Like does the lycopene dissipate? Do you know?
4: No, it doesn't actually. Okay. When you cook it down, even I guess when you grill watermelon, for instance, mm-hmm. if you add a fat source like olive oil, for instance, yep. it increases the absorption of the lycopene. So when you pair it with a fat source, you get more of the absorption in your body.
2: Oh wow! So while well, all these years I've been eating fresh tomato sauce with olive oil, I've actually like I've increased the benefits of lycopene without even realizing it.
4: Yeah, you bet. Yeah, Uh you have. Yeah. (laughs) Coolio.
2: All right. So everybody eats the pink part of the watermelon or the yellow part if you're fancy schmancy, but like you can eat all the watermelon, right? Do you know what's really cool?
4: You can actually, with the rind, you can pickle it almost like a cucumber. So when you're pickling something, you use sugar, salt, vinegar, some spices, peppercorns, that type of thing. Yep. You can pickle the rind and eat it as a pickle. You can actually even slice up the rind because it's fully edible. And you can use it in a stir fry, just like you would use broccoli or cauliflower. So there's no waste.
2: When you say the rind, do you mean the skin as well or, or just the white part?
4: Actually, the skin is like the skin and the white part. So when you pickle something or you cook something, it softens. So you know how if you think about eating the rind of a watermelon, it would be very tough. Yeah. So that's why pickling would be a good technique because it would kind of loosen up the fibers and soften it as well as like lightly sautéing it and then it becomes kind of like a, a mild sweet flavor. You should try it.
2: Okay, yeah, cuz I you know, I've unintentionally bitten into like the white part and it's kind of unpleasant, we'll call it, if you know, mm-hmm. as compared to the pink part. So that's cool. And I've been to restaurants where they have pickled watermelon. So I've had it before and it is quite good once it's pickled. So I get you.
4: Yeah. It's a cool way to use it and reduce waste. And also the seeds of the watermelon. If you think about, let's say a pumpkin, you take the seeds out, you wash them, you dry them, then you can put them in the oven and put a bit of olive oil and salt and roast them. And if you think about it, there is obviously a lot of nutrition in that seed, just like a pumpkin seed would have or any sure. other seed.
2: Are you talking about the white and the black seeds?
4: Yeah, the white seeds are a little too soft. So I would say mainly the black seeds. Okay to do that with. And another fun fact actually is that seedless watermelons have more lycopene than those without seeds, which is just a cool, fun fact.
2: Interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if you're in it for the lycopene, go for the seedless. So I know how to pick a watermelon. Do you?
4: So if you ask me, my first guess would be pick a heavier one than a lighter one because it would be juicier. Yeah. And I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think... It may also have something to do with the way the watermelon fell and there's like a spot on it. Like, do you have any good tips? Yeah,
2: I do. Okay, so one of my poker buddies is the melon king of Canada. His company imports like most of the melons that Canadians eat, or at least in the Toronto area. He gets them from all over the world. And in fact, he even grows uh, watermelons here in Canada. And he taught me some tips on how to pick a watermelon. So you got the first part right. Yeah. So you pick up a watermelon and it's kind of like a comparative study. Right. Like, so if you had two of them that are the same size and usually with the smaller ones, they're they're meant to be grown in a uniform manner. It's the heavier one you want, because what that means is that it's got more water in it. Obviously, Mm -hmm. it's heavier. So that's what you're looking for. The other thing, it's the thump test. Okay, so you you want to thump the two and you want the one that resonates with the deeper thump as opposed to the lighter thump. So you want to hear the reverberation and you want to hear the darker thump when you do that. And the last part is, you know, you almost had it. There's a little discoloration on the melon. Mm-hmm. And that's where the melon has touched the ground. So sometimes it's white and sometimes it's yellow. You okay. actually want it to be yellow because that's how you can tell it's a little bit riper. With other melons, you can sort of push the button. And if it there's a little bit of give in it, it means it's riper. With a watermelon, you almost can't do that because the rind is so thick that mm-hmm. you usually don't get that give. So the darker the yellow spot, the riper the watermelon.
4: So if it's white, it's not ripe. If it's darker, like more on the yellow side, it's riper.
2: It depends on the variation. But mm-hmm. generally, if you're looking at a bunch of watermelons and some of them have the white spot and some of them have the yellow spot, mm-hmm. go for the yellow spot.
4: Ooh, that's exciting. Thanks for sharing. Right. I love that.
2: That's it. That's all I know about watermelons.
4: <laughs> And I actually think the bigger watermelons taste better than the mini watermelons.
2: Yeah. But you know, if you're on your own, you may not want a whole watermelon and I'm not into like getting the pieces. So like, I, I get why people get the little ones, but I agree with you. The Mm -hmm. bigger ones are better.
4: I find them speeder.
2: All right. So let's talk about preparations of watermelons.
4: Yes. There's so many things you can do. So. One of my favorite things to do is to pair it with feta, like a salty briny cheese, and then fresh herbs like mint, basil. It's just the simpler, the better when it comes to, you know, cubing a watermelon, putting some herbs, putting some feta, and then just a basic vinaigrette. I typically will make a vinaigrette with lime juice and lime zest.
2: So I have a variation on that, so I've got a story about that. So like when my kids were really little, there was this Muppets video that they would watch. And there was this song about how you wouldn't have watermelons with cheese. Oh. And it was a joke song, right? Cause like back in the day you would think like cheddar cheese doesn't go with watermelons. And it was like, ha ha ha. The kids all thought it was hilarious. And then I went to a middle Eastern restaurant where they had watermelon salad with feta and their version. So now when I think of, when I eat that salad, I think of that song but you, you are allowed to have it with cheese. And it is quite good.
4: Isn't it? I think it's a great pairing. Yeah. Um,
2: the restaurant where I have it, which is Parallel, they put some bird's eye chilies in as well.
4: Oh, yeah. It's funny you say that because I have in my cooking demos, I actually teach a salad. I'm teaching it in a few days that it has a lime juice sriracha sauce. Yeah. yeah. So you do need the spice with the bitter with the sweet like yeah. everything else. Yeah. So the bird's eye chili is a great idea or jalapeno and watermelon would pair really nicely.
2: Yeah, you do need the spice element. And I would say this, if you're making it, do not put the watermelon with the cheese until you are ready to serve it. It's Agreed. not it's not a salad that can sit. You have to eat it Agreed. in the moment.
4: Yeah, another tip is if you have like a leafy green, like arugula, yep. dress the leafy green first, yes. then put the watermelon in the feta and then just drizzle the dressing on top and don't toss.
2: Yeah. And also, if you're going to make the salad, try and go for the firmest watermelon you can, because sometimes it gets soggy. But once it does, the whole texture of the salad is off. Like you it kinda, brings
4: it down. You, I agree. You
2: want to kind of cut into that watermelon. That's the fun of it.
4: Yeah. And don't overdo the watermelon because it will make it heavy.
2: Correct. All right. We have time for maybe like one or two more recipes. What else do you have?
4: Have you ever seen a watermelon cake on the internet when they pair watermelons with grapes and kiwis and they just make like a tower? No. It's gorgeous. Very colorful. Okay. Yeah. So watermelon cake. Grilled watermelon, where you get the grill marks, and you're giving me more ideas to do like a spicy jalapeno drizzle or something on it.
2: I've never grilled watermelon, so are there any tricks that you need to know? Like, would you brush it with oil or is it okay?
4: Normally, no, I wouldn't brush it with oil. I would top it with oil afterwards. Okay. Yeah, it's almost like corn, you know, like I never brush corn with oil. I put the topping afterwards. So, no, I think that would make it soggier. I think it's the after effect. Another thing is you could do like ice cream and maybe like a, like a bourbon maple, you know, I'm thinking a caramel bourbon sauce. I'm thinking of so many good ideas.
2: I would think, you know, you could juice the watermelon Mm -hmm. and pair it with gin, almost like a gin and tonic type drink. Oh,
4: and Jamie with lime juice and strawberries. Do you know what I once did? I made a watermelon slushy and then I topped it with chia seeds. So it kind of mimicked the black seeds.
2: Mm. Isn't that cute? That is cute. Mm -hmm. We have to think of that name for that cocktail we just came up with. Yes. Maybe that's for the next show. What do you want to talk about next time you're on the show?
4: Let's talk about summertime, backyard entertaining in a safe COVID-friendly fashion.
2: Sounds great. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, Jamie. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the importance of engagement on The Tonic. Is joint pain keeping you from enjoying your favorite activities? New Roots Herbal can help. Whether it's reducing acute pain and chronic inflammation or rebuilding worn-down cartilage, discover joint pain relief, Inflaheal Plus, and chondroitin glucosamine from New Roots Herbal. Only the highest quality natural ingredients tested for purity and potency in an ISO-accredited lab. Available exclusively at your local health food store. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca.
5: You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio.
2: Success enabler, idea broker, and award-winning marketer at the PR department, Brigitte Foisy has been the strategist behind some of Canada and the world's brightest and biggest brands for over 30 years. Also vice president at Chefs Canada, the organization that manages our national culinary teams, what she enjoys most is connecting people and being the bridge to successful, mutually beneficial partnerships. Welcome to the show. How are you?
3: Thank you for having me. I'm great.
2: How about you? I'm doing well. So coming out of COVID, you know, we've been talking about immunity and we've been talking about washing our hands and we've been talking about all that <laughs> stuff for, you know, well over a year. And I was thinking about new things that we could talk about. And I was thinking about how in some ways, you know, we're going to be getting back to some of the things that we were doing before. And, and and one of those things that we were doing before is is being a part of the community. And I thought we could talk about engagement today. Does that make sense?
3: That totally makes sense. I think, as by design, uh, humans are made for community. So it's not only something that boosts physical and mental health, but community provides a sense of belonging and social connectedness. I don't know if you remember the book, The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman.
2: I've heard of the book. I didn't read it, but I I know it.
3: So I did a little survey with my team yesterday morning to see what their love language was when it came to work. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of like astonished to see that two of them mentioned quality time, ACA workplace bonding was their love language, while a few others stated that words of affirmation were their preferred way to get positive reinforcement in the workplace. And I realize that both of those things are tremendously difficult to give or to receive when working remotely. So if you don't get fulfilled through genuine connections in your personal and social life right now, and you don't get it at work either because you're working remotely, I can see how many are struggling and feeling totally isolated since the beginning of the pandemic. So it's definitely a problem. I
2: agree. I agree. And I think it's important on so many levels to be connected to the community. I think we're, you know, I think that one of the problems with social media and, and the internet is that we've become tribes again, like little ignorant tribes that don't understand each other. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's really important that you go out and you experience the world and that you experience a larger community than maybe those who you already agree with or those you feel comfortable with. Because if we don't continue to grow, I think, you know, our minds narrow and then our our universe gets smaller. And particularly as we age, you know, it's keeping that open mind is what I think keeps us young. Does that make sense to you?
3: Oh, yeah. My motto in life is you stall, you (laughs) rust. I think like you need to grow. And and I think those tools like social media is a tool. And and I think we need to use it to get to our goals, right? Like social media is tremendously positive when it is about connecting to people we love. I mean, even they have a latest feature called community where you can connect with your neighbors. I mean, those things are positive tools when they're used in a positive way. So I think we need to manage those tools. So it enables kind of the lifestyle that we're looking for.
2: How would you recommend that people could become engaged? What can we do?
3: Well, I know that I'm personally guilty of making annual like New Year's resolution about taking more time to connect with family and friends. But yeah. when it gets down to it, like it falls through the cracks and, you know, there's 24 hours in a day and it's hard to fit in like, you know, work and mom and and all those things. So I think for me, it's about being intentional and proactive. Okay. And if you if we're waiting for people to make the first move to say, "Hey, let's have cocktails on you know house party," or yeah. and let me write a card and le- like, I think we need to be intentional, and I think we need to be proactive, and I, I feel like we need to put that in our agenda, just like going to the gym or going to a hairdresser appointment. To me, it has to be. I think if we need to slot it in in order for it to happen. Otherwise, you end up. At the end of the week and say, well, you know, I've been busy, but did I reach out to my friends? Did I reach out to my community? You know, that's never going to happen by itself.
2: For me, uh, like I communicate for a living, right? And you do too, right? Like it's, yeah. it's intrinsic to what we do, but in slightly different ways. So everybody, you know, assumes that I'm this person that you know interacts with everybody all the time when in fact I'm actually quite introverted and it doesn't come naturally to me. Like I shrink at parties, it's not my thing. I'm not a man of the people. And so for me, it's always a revelation about how I feel when I actually make an effort to make those connections, which I did, you know, for me, it was reaching out to people that I hadn't spoken with in a while during COVID. But I'm, you know, I think there's many things that we can do coming out of COVID that perhaps we couldn't do during COVID. And I'm talking more about like the big picture types of things, like like volunteering and and participating in charity work. Do you want to discuss that for a bit?
3: Sure. There's lots of things I think that people can do. I don't think there's ever been a time where there was... As many virtual classes that you could take, and and that refers to like finding people that maybe may they be friends doing it with a friend or with a stranger, but going you know attend a class together that finds people that has the same passion as you do. I mean, stores like the Running Room offers like running groups all over the city, and Lululemon right. offers yoga classes. So there, I think there's things that are fingertips to connect with people and that's why I was saying being intentional about those things but definitely I feel well charity work is is definitely one of my favorite ways to connect but also to give back and I think that's something that's been I think either you do it and you do it a lot Oh, you don't do it at all. (laughs) I think it's either way. I found a a recent survey, which I thought was interesting. In 2018, it says that 74% of Canadians volunteered in one way or another. And more recently, StatCan released a survey that showed that 52% of Canadians were looking to volunteer during the pandemic and didn't, weren't engaged. And it's odd to me because it also says that 43% of volunteer manager stated that they're experiencing the effect of layoff and, and reduced hours and less supporting staff. So it feels to me like it's a no-brainer that we should talk about volunteering and giving back because it's a solution to both sides of the equation, right? Like for, for charity and for people who are looking for a sense of belonging,
2: I guess. So like you're on the show because you're one of those volunteers, you're one of those charitable people. And, you know, I brought you on to discuss it because I'm really not. I'm one of those Canadians that just, it doesn't come naturally to me. So I figure my role is to encourage other people to do it, right? So that's sort of why we're, we're talking about it today. But what I found during the pandemic, and, and again, it was a revelation for me, but probably not normal people. And that is when I was feeling particularly... Blue, if I felt like things were out of control or I, I couldn't manage what I had in front of me, helping other people actually made me feel better. And again, for most people that that's not a revelation, but for me it was. Do you understand totally.
3: that by doing good I think for others and the community, I think it provides a natural sense of accomplishment and I think the better you feel about yourself, the more likely you are to have a positive outview of your life and in general. So I think it's win win all around for
2: sure. Let's talk about the best way to get started, because it's one thing to speak philosophically. Oh, you know, we should do more. We should volunteer. We should do charity. work. sure. But for those who aren't inclined to do so or those who are maybe have forgotten how to do so over the past year, what would you recommend?
3: Well, I think people need to focus on what they care about. I think merging passion and purpose is the best. And if you hate animals, well, don't go give you time to WWF like right. it's just exactly. like it's yeah. just like a no brainer i think researching organizations that are dedicated to the causes that you care about enables that long term alignment i think there's a couple of questions i would ask once you find like the charities that are within your realm of what you care about it's ask what openings they have for volunteers and see what quote-unquote jobs they are offering because if a soup kitchen is looking for volunteers to chat with their clients and you're tremendously introverted and you're not comfortable talking to strangers, that's obviously not a great fit. So I think looking for what positions they have to fill and if you're you know, like that's something you want to do, then I think that's great. I think the second question I would ask is how much of our little time they need and see if it fits your schedule. Because if they're saying we're looking for a commitment of like five hours minimum a week from a volunteer and you can only give one, then obviously that's not sustainable as well. So I think these are the two first questions that I would definitely ask when aligning yourself with a charity. And I feel like dedicate yourself to one or two, like don't spread yourself out. I think it's very fulfilling to see the outcome of our actions in a tangible way. So see the outcome of your actions in a tangible way. So if you choose one or two, then you can definitely see the impact that your contribution has on the charity.
2: I have time for one last question. And that is, I I know you're involved sort of in with, uh, you know, color, community work and and how did you come to pick that how did that become a passion of yours
3: my agency works with a lot of food brands and I saw a need with chefs that nobody was really investing in and and it's a community in Canada that was very isolated, like everybody works on their own restaurant, and and there was really no bridge within the Canadian chef industry to share the knowledge and to share the techniques. And I feel like that's about protecting our terroir and really uh, enabling our Canadian cuisine to grow and evolve. So I felt like being a bridge between all of them and helping into making events and opening social media channel, enabling them to talk, it would help and benefit our culinary world at large and and help the next generation of chefs so that, you know, it grows instead of always have to stay the same or everybody being independently working on their their own thing uh, instead of the benefit of our industry at large. And that's what at Chef Canada we try to do. We try to, it's a big organization that welcomes those experts from the culinary world, but also the experts, the professionals that can help give a voice to those chefs in Canada and and our industry that is tremendously suffering, especially since the beginning of COVID. Like we have 10,000 restaurants in Canada that have closed since the beginning of COVID. So definitely an industry that will need some help to grow and to become sustainable again.
2: Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
3: Oh, no problem. My pleasure.
2: What would you like to discuss next month?
3: Well, I think we should discuss how we get involved with charities and and which one to pick and talk more thoroughly about giving back.
2: Fantastic. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss conserving water around the house on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free and great tasting greens on the market. Hi, I'm Jamie Buss, and I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show and podcast, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's a health and wellness publication distributed with the Globe and Mail to each and every home subscriber in Toronto west of Victoria Park. And it can be found free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA. You can learn more about Tonic Magazine at tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, check out the new look of Tonic Magazine.
3: This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio.
2: Candace Best has over 20 years of public relations and marketing communications experience, including with Canada's Tier 1 companies in the financial and telecom sectors, before starting her agency, Best PR. Candace has led PR for a range of lifestyle brands in beauty, fashion, food and beverage, health and wellness, and travel. And today, Best PR focuses exclusively on serving purpose-driven, planet-conscious companies with a mission of elevating impact towards a more sustainable future. She's a champion for BIPOC communities and is committed to social impact initiatives aligned with sustainable development goals, aiming to create a better, fairer world by 2030. Welcome back to the show. How are you?
5: I'm doing well, Jamie. How are you today?
2: I'm doing really well. So it's, you know, theoretically, it's getting hot out. It's, it's kind of ebbing and flowing, but, you know, it's summertime, long days. You know, Toronto summers can be hot and that gets us to think about water and water conservation, right?
5: Yes, absolutely. It certainly is a time that, well, we certainly see a lot more water used outdoors, that's for sure.
2: So what does water usage look like in Canada? And, you know, even though we have all this fresh water, why is it important to conserve it?
5: Well, first, I'll just, you know, to sort of lay uh, level set here, yeah. um, Canada is what is considered to be a freshwater-rich country, yep. so we have 7% of the world's renewable fresh water, and uh, often that gives us the impression that water is abundant, because around us, it kind of is, yep. but therefore, you know, maybe it's not necessary for us to conserve it, but the reality is we must uh, get better at being stewards for better water consumption. And there are some really easy habit changes we can make at home to use water more wisely. We are a thirsty nation. Canada, that is. Uh, Canadians use around 330 litres of water each day, which is about twice as much as the average European. So that's significant. Um, We can at least try to do as well as those in Europe. And because of all the water we have, and that the world is now actually facing a freshwater crisis, Jamie, Canadians actually have an increased responsibility to be the guardians of the planet's uh, precious freshwater resources. In urban populations especially, so here in Toronto, increasing demand We have climate change. There's the high cost of replacing aging infrastructure that will likely make sustainable water management more challenging in the future. Canada does recycle its freshwater, but on a really small scale in relative terms and typically in isolated areas and largely for agricultural use, more prevalent in areas like British Columbia and the prairies. And so, in other words, we just need to be better at conserving water, and our biggest impact can be made through our daily habits in the home. So, we have personal choices we can make every day at home.
2: So, let's talk about those daily habits, and where would you start? What would you start, the easiest, lowest-hanging fruit?
5: Well, let's start at the top of a typical day, in the bathroom, as mm-hmm. you get ready to start the day. Many will start their day with a shower. Mm-hmm. So, you can make a conscious effort to reduce the amount of time you spend in the shower. Mm-hmm. Just reducing the time spent showering by two minutes every day can save around 2,600 litres of water per month. That's a significant stat. Mm-hmm. The extra conservation-minded will go as far as installing a shower timer to ensure they stick to, say, a four- to five-minute shower. Most of us can get everything we need to get done in there in, in four- to five minutes. It's also wise to consider installing a low-flow water-saving shower head. I know many have already done that. That can save up to 60% of water per month just that switch alone. And then another trick for those who really want to go the extra water saving mile is to keep a bucket in the bathroom. You know when you first turn on the shower, most people will wait a little bit for the water to warm up. Yep. That water can be collected and used to water plants, for example, that could be indoors or out. So there's a lot of water in that short period of time of warm up that can be better conserved. Okay. Brushing our teeth, there's no need to keep the water running while you brush your teeth. So just turn off the faucet, while brushing your teeth, this can be your goal for the next month. Yep. And that will save up to 11 liters of water in a day. I mean, that's, you know, the average person would probably brush their teeth a couple times a day. So uh, yeah, you go to toilet flushing. Yep, That can require somewhat of a bigger investment, but it's a worthwhile investment. A lot of people are renovating now. And so if you're renovating the bathroom, and you don't have a high-efficiency dual-flush toilet, I'd suggest one with a separate flush mode for liquid waste, mm-hmm. which uses much less water. And this alone can save about 20% of water per year than conventional one-flush-only toilets. And finally, do not use the toilet as a waste basket. Yep. So every time you flush a facial tissue or small bits of trash, you're just wasting several liters of water. Put those items in a
2: proper garbage bin. Okay, let's move... From the bathroom to the kitchen, because there's lots of water there.
5: Yeah. In the kitchen, there are a really, you know, some easy habits to adopt. Yep. First, opt for using the dishwasher over hand washing.
2: Yeah. I was surprised to learn that it's actually more efficient than running the water in the sink to wash your dishes.
5: Exactly. It sounds counterintuitive, It does. doesn't it? Yeah, it does. But it turns out the washing dishes by hand uses a lot more water than running the dishwasher even more so if you have a water-conserving model dishwasher, which many of the ones that are newer today are. Mm -hmm. The EPA, that is the Environmental Protection Agency, estimates Efficient dishwasher uses half as much water, saving up to 15,000 liters each year in the average household. So, again, that is a lot of water. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're going to opt to wash the dishes by hand, some still don't have a dishwasher, don't leave the water running for rinsing. Ideally, if you have two sinks, you fill one with rinse water and the other you do the washing in, use minimal quantity of detergent, as minimal as possible, because this then limits the amount of rinse water needed as well. Mm-hmm. Another easy hack is not to let the faucet run while you clean vegetables. I like to just fill the sink. Like when I do my grocery shop or right now, it's summertime. I get a farmer's delivery once a week. I batch wash all those vegetables at once in just a full sink. And so that's just one use of water at one time.
2: I would do that, except I find that sometimes when you wash the vegetables, particularly greens, you're limiting the shelf life.
5: This is true. There's a way, I think, keeping a little moisture. There are some hacks within the fridge. That sure, you can like, use. like wet
2: towels and things like that. You know, we do that. But still, I understand what you're saying. If your goal is to preserve water, then I would agree with you.
5: Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Because once you open up, for example, those leaves of lettuce, yeah. reserve, there's some natural moisture that's trapped in there that's yeah. kind of helping to keep it more lively for longer periods. So I get that. But Maybe leave the lettuce out, Jamie, and then do the rest. Good idea. I keep a bottle of drinking water in the fridge. I know many people do this now, but it's you know they often don't think about why they do that and this really beats the inefficient tendency for running tap water to cool it yeah. for drinking. So that alone can save 600 to 900 liters of water every month. So that's a lot over the year. And then defrosting frozen foods. For some, it's still a practice to do that with running water. So either you know plan a little bit further ahead and put those frozen things in the refrigerator overnight. Or if you're a microwave user, use the defrost setting. This can save from 150 to upwards of 500 liters every month, depending on how much you're defrosting. Wow. And finally, a really easy one is just cook foods in less water. So let's say you're boiling potatoes, like you don't necessarily need to fill the pot all the way to the top. These little incremental changes really do add up over the course of a month and a year and, and certainly over a decade.
2: Let's move to the laundry room. What do you recommend?
5: Well, doing laundry off the top is just a water-intensive process, yeah, it is. but there yeah. are some simple cuts that can be made that do make a big impact. First, this now sounds a bit obvious, but uh, you should ideally wait to have a full load of laundry before turning the washing machine on. Mm-hmm. So I know there are some people, you know, they want to wear that specific T-shirt, kind of like yield <laughs> against yeah. that sort of intuition to sort of, you know, just put a couple things in the laundry. That's you know, a full load does save a lot of water.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: And then if clothing isn't heavily soiled and if your washing machine has the option choose a short or my machine, for example, has a short and an express cycle for washing. So just a shorter amount of time, there's just less water being used. And then whenever possible, do wash with cold water. Though this isn't saving water per se, it is saving the energy used to heating that
2: water. And yeah. so
5: overall, that's uh, you know, part of the whole conservation model.
2: Okay. Let's move outdoors because people have gardens and they water their gardens. So what are your suggestions there?
5: Well, for those who still have lawns, I'm happy to see a trend, at least here in the city, many moving away from sort of the full kind of monoculture of a lawn. But uh, there are still a lot who have lawns and love to have, you know, perfectly green lawns. If you're going to, you know, water your lawn, avoid doing so on windy days. Mm -hmm. There's excessive evaporation. So that alone, that evaporation alone can waste up to a 1000 litres in a single watering. Mm -hmm. This may be another sort of obvious thing to point out but you know jamie nothing makes me more upset than to see automatic sprinklers in operation while it's raining i saw this just yesterday it was raining yesterday morning and like a neighbor has like i was prepared walking the dog just to like kind of knock on the door being like your sprinkler doesn't actually need to be on right now it's raining nature is wetting it for you so you can change or deactivate that auto timer feature on sprinklers putting a layer of mulch around trees and plants as well as peak greenery or rock, you know, gradually will slow down evaporation. And this can save, you know, up to 5,000 litres of water every month. And then it's also better generally just to water gardens during the cool parts of the day for the sake of reducing evaporation due to the heat before the plant's roots can absorb that water. So cooler time better. You know, I know many who have the practice of going out first thing in the morning, yep. you know, before the sun is kind of... But a midday watering is, is not the the most efficient uh, use of the water. And then for those who may have saved the water from the shower before it warms up, as I referenced earlier, the garden is a great place to use that water.
2: Yep. And I would add this, like if you're looking, I would look for species that are native because they are already set to grow with the amount of water that we normally get in Toronto. So why not plant an indigenous plant? And then that way, you know that you don't have to put extra water in there. And there's lots of beautiful trees and shrubs and plants that are local
5: brilliant point. I love that. And I think more people are leaning into that idea of uh, indigenous uh,
2: plants. I got rid of my grass years ago. And the reason was I was I was fighting a rearguard action against the dandelions. But also it just grass does not grow naturally in Toronto. It just doesn't. We don't have the right climate for it. And to continue to do so just to make it green and uniform just doesn't didn't make sense to me. You know, I take care of my lawn myself. It's not that I don't care. it just it didn't make sense. So I'm, yeah. I'm with you there.
5: I see you're uh, you were leading that trend Jamie because I'm seeing it more and more which I love to see I think it is you're you're so right it's so hard to keep a fully green lawn and that takes generally a lot of
2: water. Exactly. That's all the time we have today. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you,
5: Jamie.
2: Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Serge Sinelli, Shauna Lindzen, Bridget Foisy, and Candace Best. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes and contact information for our guests and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up Your copy of Tonic Magazine. There just may be a few issues of the May June issue available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA. And it was delivered with the Globe and Mail to every home subscriber in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you are interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you know you can always email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Next week on the show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week.